0: This is Jan Cox, talk number 2,553, recorded July 19th, 2000. Good. Uh, first off, I want to say a few things, just inside information to us, not out for the public tapes. I have, on several occasions of late, wondered whether I move too fast, uh, whether I gloss over what I have to talk about. And plus I wonder, well, you people, it doesn't matter. But it seems to be some sort of whole dynamic, which is not the right use of the word, but I'm in the habit of using it, so to hell with it. The right dynamic of being a regular guy. But by now, that can't bother any of you people because you know how regular I am. And it's obvious I'm not suffering from any Curse of self-importance, any feelings. But I wonder if I talk too easily and pass over and come up with a whole new approach every day, every time I see you, and then I read what I wrote so fast. So without any feelings of self-importance having snuck up on me, I want to tell you, I consider, and I don't take it personally, it's no more to me sort of than some of us have big noses and some have small noses this stuff comes to me to whatever degree i have succeeded in doing this the only thing i can say is i succeeded on my own that i taught myself which doesn't make any sense and blah 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 but to me personally and it's up to you to you know determine whether we have something in common but to me my ideas about all of this. My views, my models, my ideas, to me are without equal. There's nothing even close. And so it's just that periodically I make little jokes at my expense. I'll be here reading and talking about how many papers I brought in tonight and my God will never get through them. And oftentimes treating the whole affair, at least my part of it, in an offhand manner. And I don't know whether I've perchance done anybody a disservice, because I am being facetious totally. I do not take the ideas that come to me and the things I write and the things I talk to you people about. If there's anything in the world I take seriously, it is only that. And I repeat, I find my ideas to be the most expansive, this is to me, the most worthwhile of anything I have ever found, and there doesn't seem to be any limit to it. I can't seem to stop myself. I just wanted to mention that. I've got a subject. We can start to t- figure this is a regular tape now. I'm going into a subject that I don't know whether I'll be spending tonight on or six months. Because it segues into something else. It's a vast, swampy conspiracy. There's algae Spreading so far as I said that I don't know when I might stop. Six, eight months from now I may just have to arbitrarily stop, which is what I normally do. In case you never noticed. I just quit talking about it. I'm still going to expand on what I've been that current model of me again talking about man as though he literally had two brains. And on the basis of that old sort of model that has some scientifically acceptable validity, the idea of the old reptilian brain going up, including the brain stem, which I could refer to or have been as our instinctive brain. Instinct being inborn patterns, and for all intents and purposes, are unchangeable. They control absolutely automatic reactions in an animal to the external world, to external stimuli and to its own internal hormonal stimuli. But to the two brains of the reptilian brainstem, instinctive mind, and what I've been referring to as the mammalian, obviously the cortex, but even tonight I pushed a little bit further and referred to it as the discretionary mind. The instinctive and the discretionary. The discretionary, of course, being, comparably speaking, compared to the instinctive and discretionary in referring to the ability to make independent judgment, the ability to do something voluntarily. Uh, and I included, which doesn't hurt, but I include the ability to be selective because when we operate instinctively, as I pointed out, as reptiles do, since reptilian brain fits, Everything is simply an automatic reaction. There is no choice. An alligator does not have a choice whether he's going to react to a a noise of a certain intensity or movement of a certain whatever he's wired up to react to, but movement at such a degree in his peripheral vision that has such and such movement to it, he has no choice. That and to the same degree we have no choice instinctively To what we are programmed to do. But then we have this mind. Once it grows out of the brain stem. Into the cortex. And the so called reptilian brain. Turned into the mammalian brain. Tonight in several of the papers I wrote. I referred to it as the discretionary brain. Because compared to instincts. We apparently. And this is not the time to argue it. We've already been through this. But apparently. Man in that part of the brain. Has discretion. There's no arguing that from a comparable view. Well, As compared to an alligator, our cortex, our conscious mind, so to speak, compared to our non conscious mind. Those two compared, then the cortex, that mind, has discretion, comparably speaking. But I wanted to mention that so that you wouldn't, so that you'd know what I was talking about. Alright, here's what I wrote to start with. During one of their special conversations, a father said to his son, Much of man's routine mental life is taken up with regrets. Remembrance remembrances of past words and deeds, deeds which the thinker now regrets. From simple observation it seems that only a creature who thinks can suffer from regrets. And as always, we might assume that the purpose of holding memories of past regrettable actions is to use them for future decision making. But ask yourself, my boy, just how many of these various jumbled memories do you actually use in making decisions? Truth is, you don't know. It's easy to complain of their constant swirling in your head and condemn it as a part of being asleep. But in fact, you do not really know whether this constant automatic mental activity is constantly proving valuable to you. So, how do you know that the mystic so-called state of distraction is truly useless, much less detrimental? The old man stopped speaking, leaving this rhetorical challenge hanging in the air between them. Until the boy finally said, I just know, I just know, don't you? A new mental challenge to which the elder could not negatively, to which he could not negatively respond. Amongst a certain ancient warrior class was held a dictum that lives both literally and metaphorically, quote, don't complain, don't explain, which are two sides to the same coin, two partners in a common dance, and tis, I say, related to the matter of regrets. If you want to get to the bottom of of the life of a creature with thoughts, this points up the need not to uselessly complain about the actions of others that your mind finds regrettable, nor to explain, which which herein means excuse, actions of your own that you find regrettable. This much even some non-metaphysical warriors can grasp, but there is more. The man who now has the ability to carry his thinking beyond the normal boundaries should study this matter entirely as related to him. Thus, he obviously should not try to explain and excuse to himself past actions which his mind now regrets. No, it's much more subtle than that. What he needs is to see for himself the absolute misleading folly in him complaining to himself about the regrettable acts in the first place. In other words, he should not acknowledge in his mind that he has any regrets. If you accept to picture that a mind that knows the truth about everything would be basically an empty place in which nothing is known, then you must further realize that in such a mind there would be no knowledge of regrets. There is no doubt that at the essential survival-related level, if an animal makes a physical misstep, it may remember the act in a future similar situation and avoid a repetition, but this does not equal regret. Regret is limited to the one animal who thinks, and while it can be seen as being a mentally-based elaboration of of mere bodily recollections of some past costly action when the memory in question does not concern essential matters. Got a bite sentence. Regret is limited to the one animal who thinks, and while it can be seen as being a mentally based elaboration on mere bodily recollections of some past costly action when the memory in question does not concern matters essential. And the man in question sincerely wants to understand what's actually going on. A close examination of this affair will clearly reveal to him that regrets regarding anything he has ever done that was not physically life-threatening serve only to close his mind by flooding it with memories that carry a particularly insidious form, a particular insidious foe, passion, regret. The advanced understanding of this reveals to a man seeking enlightenment the fact that it is meaningless, then obstructive for him to even regret that he is not enlightened. There are no regrets in the land of what's really going on. For over there, same as over here, all that's going on is what is going on. But over there, there is no one to think about it. Harboring regrets will blind you as sure as acid to the eyes. And now let's get to the bad news, get the bad news out of the way. A man who continues to entertain thoughts about himself that do not concern physical matters will, I fear, never wake up to what's going on. Of course, the news isn't really bad, inasmuch as much as if he never wakes up to this, he'll never have the necessary understanding to feel bad about it. In regard to man having two minds, the instinctive and the discretionary, and that one expresses itself verbally and in human terms, and the other does not, then the proper interpretation of such stories as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde does not represent two different persons in the same body, but rather the existence of one person in one man's body along with a person that is not a person. Only those who successfully pursue the question who exactly am I, will ever understand this interpretation. I gave it a shot. The more civilized and mentally oriented you are, the more regrets you have. In fact, from the view of such people, a sure sign that another is lacking in civility and human development is if they suffer from an insufficient amount of regrets. And I add to this that a sure sign that you lack understanding... Is in your harboring regrets. Someone defined man as, quote, the only animal that shows shame. To which I add, quote, the only source of shame for a man seeking the truth is in playing host to, in his shame. Now you got that one right. One thing to be ashamed about is if you ever feel ashamed. It may be tolerable to be embarrassed about tripping over your own feet. But beyond that, what shame is there in being a human and being alive? On what rational basis can a man have regrets about his life when a rational inquiry reveals that he does not even lead his life? (laughs) Certainly not as his mind proclaims. In the land where the light always shines, the word regret is a synonym for blank space and intelligence. From one verbally notable view, the key to living a life of the enlightened is in living in accord with the prevailing conditions, living by instinct, not by discretionary mental concepts. Attempts at self-analysis always puts one at least partially out of stuff with conditions, and this is the real state behind the term being diluted. A fact, the steady awareness of which proves most valuable to the few. The natural, essential world is to be taken seriously, never the human, artificial one. In a beauty contest between misinstinct and misdiscretionary, there is no contest. Regrets are a large part of a uniquely human mental continuity that is the binding agent holding together many mortal relationships. In other words, many a dance team is kept together by the music of regret. From a more profitable non-local view, a man who continually thinks about his own best interest doesn't have his own best interest in play. P.S., this has nothing at all to do with anything men refer to as morality. After some consideration of the whole subject of regret, one man voices this view, quote, It seems to me that a man should be both sensitive and hard as an engine block. Sensitive to the feelings of others, yet indifferent to his own. Referring, of course, to mental feelings that is, human emotion. Being alive is both a delicate matter and a non-delicate matter. And the more thought-oriented is a man, the more he thinks that the mental reality is where the greatest delicacy is needed. But I say to the contrary. I say if you can see what life is actually all about right before your very own eyes, then you will realize that it is not in the inner world of thought where delicacy is required. No, no. Not hardly. Yet I do like the part of what the man said about the engine block, about the enlightened mind is like an engine block. Not a running motor, just an engine block. Just sitting there, hard as steel and going nowhere. I just thought of a question How is the enlightened mind like pig iron? And the answer is, how is it not unlike it? Back to the reading. One guy says, as regards my complaints with my consciousness, whenever I stop and think about it, I realize that what my mind normally thinks about is meaningless to me. So the question is, who is it in me to whom it does seem meaningful? Words being abstract and theoretical, instead of real and immediate, they can conjure up in the mind apparent real possibilities, which are in fact unreal. For instance, since the mind is the field on which the word game is played, there is no way to convince the mind that it is not free as it so thinks it is. A mind that relies on words has in truth nothing substantial on which to rely. But do note, men commonly identified as being intellectual continually raise such questions as, quote, is technology moving too fast? Quote, are the super rich becoming even more disproportionately richer? The tacit message being that a man of words and of the mind can not only rationally respond there too, but can actually stop the mechanisms in question. To an awakened mind, it is always a matter of facta non verba, deeds not words. And may I remind you of the technique of constantly asking yourself, "What does instinct say?" In the zoological di- division of animals into the defensive and offen- into the offensive and defensive. Man is listed in the latter. And in fact, it has been said that, quote, man is at his best when on the defense. Which you might note from one view. it is could be said that on the basis of man being pusillanimous, That all of technology, all of civilization is based upon him being a timid, him being a creature of flight, him being an offensive creature, and that from one quite valid view, I wasn't going to stop and go into it right now, but all of technology could be seen as an attempt to create defenses for what is, that is, homo sapiens, for what is a fairly defensiveness. Creature. I find that very interesting one day. That every piece of technology. In fact, I can carry it further. Every piece of the secondary world, as I call it. Every piece, everything that's arisen from man's discretionary mind. Is, can be directly traced to fear. Times past, I used to say things I would point out like that all collections of people like at ball games or in synagogues, religious services, they're not actually there for a religious service or to see a sporting event. They're there because of sex. I used to point that out periodically to some people. But, you know, you can carry it much deeper than that. The The unity of all of this, as far as using words, is that from one view, it's all survival. And it's all based on fear. Once you accept the fact that man is an offensive. I mean, a defensive creature, and not offensive. Between the deer and the lion scenario, we're the gazelle. Regardless of how there's always an anomaly somewhere. I was going to say, regardless of how aggressive some of us, some of you can feel certain certain odd people here and there throughout history, mm-hmm. but it is accepted by zoology totally that man that they can they divide every creature the lion and the gazelle being a perfect example you know the prey and that which preys upon the prey the lion and the gazelle and we are in the the column with gazelles we are not an offensive creature we are defensive and I can look at I'm not going to stop and do it but I can look at ball games I can look at church services I can look at every collection of people And I can say it's based on sex, because sex, from one view, people used to believe was the strongest emotion there is, the strongest instinct. But the real, the strongest instinct, in one sense, is fear. And I bring it up on the basis of us being a fearful animal rather than an aggressive animal. And that everything that we do is an attempt to protect ourselves, to put up defenses, religion, sporting events, shopping, bird watching. That you can see it, or the way I saw it, is that every pack animal gets together for one reason. They can't help it. It's instinct. But they get together because instinctively, and the way it turns out, they have a better chance for the group, for the species to survive. That wild dogs out in the plains, for instance in Africa, what they feed on, one or two dogs cannot bring it down. But operating together, they can bring down a huge beast. And so every time you find a group, baboons, but any kind of pack animal, then instinctively, zoologists wouldn't even hesitate. They say, well, it's turned out that they found that operating as a unit, operating cooperatively, enhances the chances of that particular pack or the whole species of surviving. It's not that sex and reproduction is not necessary for the species to survive. To survive, obviously. But you can go past that. You can go to a lower level or a deeper level and look at it as being fear, which is D. That's really closer to this instinctive desire for survival than is sex. But at any rate, I was making another point in what I read, but I couldn't resist. Plus, I've been willing to use pusillanimous. (laughs) It's not often you get to use it. Timidity. When it comes to the division into offensive and defensive, man's been listed strictly in the defensive category. And in fact, it's been said that man is at his best when on the defense. The most invented, in other words. You know, he's at his best. But I add to that, I say that if a man seeks to become clear headed, if a man has our kind of aim, he is at his worst when on the defense as regards being entangled in regret, which is a defensive maneuver. Specifically for our purposes, a man is at his worst when defending himself from his own mental attacks on himself. E.g., quote, God, am I a stupid, sleeping bastard? Such sentiments initially strike the mind as well-deserved, accurate, and useful. But as the mind begins to open up to non-standard possibilities, this verbal view of oneself is seen as counterproductive, to say the least. The strictly human emotions of pity, hope, anxiety, and sadness can be seen as, as the discriminatory mind's acceptable interpretations of instinctive fear. And to this list, I add regret. What is regret but fear in disguise? And outside the world of instinct... What has an awakened man to fear? Of course, I could literally say outside the world of instinct, what has any man to fear? And yet when you get into, or once you have developed, which we all have, a discretionary discretionary mind, we've developed consciousness, what do we fear? As I was pointing out to you last time, it's just clear as hell, an ordinary, educated, sophisticated person on this planet would be hard-pressed to find real exceptions any longer thanks to satellite TV. But what do men fear the most nowadays? They, they fear the most things in the discretionary world, things in the cultural world. Men have much greater fear of public disapproval, becoming socially ostracized, by their peers, their betters. They have much greater fear of that than they do any instinctive fear, such as, I'm going to be killed tonight. I'll be attacked and murdered. Unless you go out slumming on purpose, then none of you have any fear. Well, of course, I'm leaving out you people who still live in Manhattan. Little joke. But nobody has fear of your life anymore. What is the great fear that you have? What people are going to say about you? What people may think about you? The question is, what does anybody outside of instinct actually have the fear? As I said, the question is valid for everybody, but the rest of the world will never see it. So that's why I said, outside the world of instinct, what has an awakened man to fear. And of course, if you do fear anything outside of instinct, instinct to fear, to jump out of the way of an oncoming truck, of course, that's kind of iffy. I don't mean to get stuck. But I find it interesting to ponder. Would instinct make you jump out of the way of a truck? If you don't watch it, you'd say, well, sure I would. I'm not so sure about that. Instinct has no, in one sense, our instincts after all of these thousands of years that we've had civilization, in one way I can see it, that this is true, that this is is a valid statement, that our instinct still has no knowledge of the artificial world. I can see it, and I just never wanted to make a big deal out of it because uh, I don't know what you people would make of it, but in one way I can see as being true that there's a possibility. This is all very contrived, but if we could cut, if we could sever at the brainstem, our discretionary mammalian cortex away from the old reptilian instinctive brain, the brainstem, and still retain some form of, at any rate, if we could do that and you could still walk around and you were on the street and you stepped out and a truck was coming at such a speed that an ordinary rational human would realize I should step back. I will never be able. I've made one step off the curb, but you just look up and you realize I'll never be able to make it. I will step back. If we were operating on just instinct, now remember, I'm talking about a truck. I'm not talking about, you know, an alligator or a lion or even another human being with a spear in their hand, a truck. I'm not sure that instinct, because of the fact that it's moving towards you, I'm not sure that instinct would make you move out of the way. I'm not sure of that at all. And to me, that has, and it did at one time, many, 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 many implications that proved useful, which I'm not going into, are you faithful? Consider it. From one view, I can see that instinct still has no knowledge of the world of artifacts, the artificial world. That the, our instinct really has no knowledge of what an automobile is when we're driving. At least you think that since you do it by habit, we well, now do it instinctively. I would question that. You certainly do it by motor habit. You do it by physical habit. But to say that you now drive by instinct, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that we do anything by instinct other than basically stay alive, breathe. Digest food, eat, reproduce, collectively we do, whether you do individually or not. But beyond the world of instinct, what I was saying in this last part of this page was, what has an awakened mind, an awakened man, to fear? It doesn't take us, no great metaphysical effort involved to see that. What is there to fear in life? What is there to, well, where this is going to get around to, by the way, is a whole other view of what it is to be asleep having to do with fear, regret, and not being able to tell the truth about yourself. Back to the reading. A man in the natural progression from infancy to maturity goes from being a, quote, biological creature to being a psychological one. But a man who wakes up to plain reality experiences a third stage wherein he returns to being a special type of biological creature once again. A, quote, primitive, wrapped up in conscious sophistication, you might say. And here's my related suggestion. Find out how to work on yourself Without assaulting yourself, which your awakened mind will ultimately realize was self-defeating all along. Ask yourself, in a struggle to resist both or either your instinctive mind or your discretionary mind, and to treat whatever you discover therein as being foreign to you, is for the purpose of accomplishing exactly what? To look within yourself, which you can't escape it. It's not that anybody's been in error. You can't escape going through this. Most people never get past it. But what is it to be accomplished? Ask yourself, literally. It's very uncomfortable, maybe. But to ask yourself, assuming you realize what I'm saying, that all efforts to awaken, the change of state of consciousness, whatever it's called, is all, could be described aptly on this basis That there is something in you, something in man, but assuming you take it personally and individually, that there is something in you that's foreign. Terminology I've generally been using is, well, the state of sleep, man's ordinary state of consciousness. Of course, the general view, when you back off and look at general views of yoga, Sufism, Zen, etc., the view always is that there is something foreign in man due to whatever the original error or sin was. And that the what we're struggling for is to take this that is foreign in us, foreign to us, that we're not supposed to be asleep. Man is not supposed to be asleep. I am not supposed to be so easily dazed and distracted and stumbling around half blind. It's foreign to me. Ask yourself quite simply, what's to be accomplished precisely? Don't just take what we've been saying or my words and ask yourself, what is to be accomplished? What is it that I believe I have in mind specifically that I want to accomplish and that is being helped along by me looking into me and finding that which I deem to be foreign? Not only that, but of course there's always the side question about what in the hell is this? How can there be something foreign in me? Where is the hole in the universe? Does the universe ever look around in itself and go, what the hell is that? <laughs> Where the hell did that come from? I assume by now you've got your own view. Uh, that can usually sound funny, but to me it's not funny. And that's not the purpose. Just to me personally, that's literally about the limits of the mind. It's the limits of me being able to talk in a way that I find acceptable. <coughs> It's absolutely a picture of the universe and the general, more or less, cosmological view of it, that it, it has limits. Some of them are getting fancier now, and notice they say, well, it may have limits, but it's limits without boundaries. <laughs> well, hey, they know how to cover their ass. Whoever said, whoever said that could have been a mystic. But at any rate, that the universe you know, either it turns back on itself, but the point is, that the universe has to be of some finite size, even if it's uh, infinite, uh, even if it's finite without boundaries, even if it's finite without discernible limitations. And mathematically, they can explain how that could be. But at any rate, to me, it, it is very explanatory. It's just a picture that I, I take it more than theoretical and the absolute folly of believing that something could be foreign in the universe. Now, from a, some local view, that is from the view of some, you know, peanut-brained human, they go, my God, well, there's a question about how did evil get in the world? You have to ask them exactly what do you mean. And then they point out something they don't like. They go, this, how can there be evil here? You go, well, where, where would you like it to be? <laughs> you know, how did it get here? <laughs> I mean, why are you asking me? You know, I don't work for the cosmological UPS. Where else is it going to be? You know, how do you call it that? If it upsets you so much, why don't you call it something else? Yeah. Why don't you call it dinner rolls? Or, you know, <laughs> would that make you feel better? Nobody wonders, where did hot croissants come from in the morning? Where did good cheese Danish come? So just change the name. At any rate. Not my suggestion here, while I quit reading, I'll pick it back up was through, you know, in a in struggle that you feel like, and I left it two ways, I could talk about this a long time, but I said in a struggle that you're resisting, both or either. Of course, you end up doing both, but I could look about it in both ways, that we struggle. When you believe you're working on yourself, when you start trying to struggle against the state of being asleep or the state of being captive or the state of being deluded, according to what system you started out in, then you're struggling with something that has been identified and which you accept as being foreign to you. The state of sleep, the state of delusion, the state of misery, the state of inner suffering. But whatever it is, the system says it's foreign to you. It does not have to be that way. It needs to be cast out. Kind of a sophisticated version, I guess, of fundamentalist ideas of good and evil of religion, that man is full of evil or demonic spirits, and he needs to repent, change himself, and cast out the evil, that there is something foreign in man. You know, evil thoughts, naughty thoughts, greed, all the stuff. All the major sins, whatever new ones they are. And it's foreign to man. So, you end up, whether you're talk about this or not, you end up, finally looking at both minds. Well, if you're going to even approach this, this whole idea that there's something foreign in you to be changed, you eventually... For a limited period of time, because it is an artificial, more than artificial, it's ersatz, division into the instinctive and the discretionary mind. That is, the conscious mind, the thinking mind, and our unconscious instinctive mind. But you have to look to both of them. And to see that although men do not, including mystics, they do not normally distinguish, they are referring to things that are foreign to them. But from both of those different sources, they never distinguish, is this a something that feels foreign to me, that I, is just part of our cultural reality, the secondary world, or is it something well, such as how common it is amongst mystics uh, throughout the ages to uh, want to repress sex, whereas sex is obviously an instinct. And then they can say, well, that they also want to repress uh, pride which all pride is, is the discretionary mind's acceptable version of sex. You can take all human emotions. I started to do this several times to you people. You can do it yourself. But based upon what I'm talking about now, this most current model, I can say that you can take all human emotions, which I still say are simply instincts that have been disguised, their instincts that the discretionary mind, our conscious mind, has labeled, given different names and made more acceptable to the discretionary mind. Such as. And I would say, I'd say it's quite easy. And I found this useful one time. i just bring it up right quick and leave it with you. That every human emotion, I don't care for good or bad, can be seen as either being... The cortex is elaboration, inversion of either sex or fear, pride, vanity, hope. I say it's all sex. That's all pride is. It's what hope is? Well, I can take hope both ways. I could say all these other great, commonly popular, human emotions: fear, anxiety, hope. Pessimism, optimism, they're all elaborations of fear, pity, sadness. Nobody is sad but man. Nobody is sad except a creature on this planet that has a cortex, that has a discretionary mind, that has a part of its brain that is not limited to instinct, to inborn pattern, apparently. But that's all sadness is. They can't treat sadness. Well, of course, they can. Pharmaceutical, as I point out, they get into where they can treat everything, but it doesn't seem to be kosher. Here, here, let's don't go too far with that. Just because it works, wait a minute. Well, what are psychiatrists going to do to make a living? They're going to go out driving cabs. Or At any rate, sadness is none but fear. Pity which has been described as one of the benchmarks of of humanness, humanism. That only man feels pity for his fellow creature. I'm telling you, just clear as hell. It's not an attack. Pity is nothing but fear. That's all it is. When you feel pity for somebody, it's your fear. I don't have to make that any plainer, do it. That's obvious as hell once you think about it. All anxiety, obviously, is fear. Remember, we're not speaking about instinctive fear. Anxiety is not instinctive fear. Anxiety is now the discretionary mind's elaboration. It's version of instinctive fear carried into the discretionary world, the secondary world, the world of culture. A painter has anxiety when he hangs up his latest work, his latest show. When it opens, he has anxiety. He's afraid he will fail. But it's not an instinctive fear. If it shows a bomb, a lion's not going to jump out and eat him. The fear is an artificial fear. Because it's a fear of things that arise from the discretionary mind. The anxiety is that I will not be accepted. The critics won't like it. But all human emotions, as I said, if you like it, I did for a while. Sex and fear can be seen as the fountainheads, the dual fountainheads of every single human emotion. Now, if you get good, you can discount sex and see it as being fear. I don't mean that sex goes away but I can see sex as being folded into, being a component of fear at the instinctive level. Not the same thing, anyway. Back to the paper. I was asking that you consider this, to ask yourself, in this struggle, which everyone who tries to awaken under whatever name, they go through this. That is, you are attempting to resist that which is coming out of your instinctive mind and or your discretionary mind, out of consciousness or out of instinct. And you attempt to treat it, or you do treat it, what you find as being there is being foreign to you. Well, here's the problem. In my mind, in my consciousness, is this state of sleep. There is this condition wherein I'm constantly distracted. That's being asleep. So, but you ask yourself, in this struggle... Against instinct that which arises out of instinct, not necessarily all of it, but you're struggling against things that arise out of instinct and things which arise out of the discriminatory, uh, discretionary mind. And you're treating the things you're struggling against as though they're foreign or you wouldn't be struggling against them, you know, out of here damn spots. The question is, what's going on and what is it exactly you have in mind to accept? Or to believe you spot them yourself, the things in you and you identify them, or you accept the identification that this is foreign. And it's in you and you accept, well, there's stuff that's foreign in me, and you accept that, and at least claim you're going to struggle against it. To what specific end? It's an extremely trick question. Fact. Back to the reading. The refusal to face and admit the truth about whatever is in your instinctive and discretionary minds is the cause of all regrets. One man's present motto is, I may be dazed, distracted, and in mental disorder, but I feel okay physically. Which leads me to suggest that you ask yourself even more bluntly another question. Why be upset when you can be clear-headed? There is no activity of greater threat to a man's total health than that of unnecessary resistance. Even if you are a mystic, all you get for your efforts are frustration, regrets, and blinding headaches. Why be blind when you can just as easily see? Does anyone realize why I say I don't know whether I'll be spending just a night on this or six months? I'm gonna reread one before I make a four or five more minutes worth. This one page 11, one guy says, because I don't think you got this, he says, in regards to my complaints with consciousness, he's our kind of guy, in fact, of course, you know this came about that I thought this myself, and I stuck it on somebody else, but he says, in regards to my complaints with consciousness, whenever I stop and think about it, that is, that I'm struggling with what goes on my mind, bringing it under control, blah, 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 just the shit that's in there and the reputation, all the stuff I point out. He says, as regards all that, if I stop and think about it, I realize that what my mind is normally thinking about is meaningless to me. But then that leaves the question, so why does it seem meaningful to me? Didn't do any better, did it? If it was me talking, And speaking on your behalf, if you were my kind of wound up, passionate mystic about this, instead of the damn fair weather Sunday or Saturday or Tuesday, pure warmers that you people have proven to be, if you were like me, if you were out there working for the Lord 24-7, that sounds nice. (laughs) Doing God's work. That's (laughs) Fighting the good fight. Then you're constantly, unless you're permanently and totally awake, then you're constantly, there I am again, wandered off my mind. I am mentally unqualified. I am dazed, distracted. I am asleep. I'm just asleep. I'm walking around. I'm driving. But I was asleep right then. Me. A lifetime is struggling to awaken. Here I'm asleep. Last thing I remember is reading that billboard that says, Fred Schwartz says he wants to be the number one honest Peugeot dealer in America and I remember I looked at his picture them handlebar mustache them car dealer and me thinking about Peugeot I didn't know they still made those sons of bitches remember the one I had in fact the guy looked like that when was that and I suddenly realized that billboard was back about three exits ago so here I am wide awake world famous mystic and I've been driving a car at 80 miles an hour and I have been to put it mildly Totally, mentally unqualified. Just mentally unqualified for approximately, I don't know what, nine miles? Nine minutes? Nine minutes, I don't know who the hell's been driving this car. I don't know who's been driving my head. But at any rate, so there I am all upset. And then one day I thought, okay, but how about this? As far as what's going on in my mind specifically. You know, the thing about the Peugeot and the car dealer, and he looks like a guy that cheated me 30 years ago. You know, the truth is, if I stop for a minute and go out, all oh, this garbage, what goes on when I am cold asleep, when I when my dog's out of the yard? What's going on is meaningless to me. You know, this was a reaction to being all upset by it. You know? Well, how the hell do I care about a car dealer? how the that beerboard get me all caught up with cars? Jesus. If I stop and think about it, what goes on in my mind normally, just mechanically, just rolling through there, is meaningless. But before, I could feel good about it and think, well, now I'm on to something positive for a change, something encouraging. No, 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 no. As soon as I went, most, most of that stuff is meaningless to me. And I was about to smile and think, now I've about got it. no then I thought, uh-oh. This brings up another question. Even though that's true, I realize on the spot that it's meaningless. I don't care. I really don't care. If I stop, and what I mean by think about it, if I become clear-headed, then what goes on in my mind that being asleep, being distracted, being totally unqualified, it's meaningless. But, then I'm stuck with a question. Then who is it I must say who then who is it that it is so meaningful to when I don't stop and think about it that's the third time Is any better well it's too late to go any further I mean something by the way I didn't get right to point this out when I say regret I mean something very specific it's based upon unnecessary resistance it's based upon Absolute unnecessary fear. But it's based upon. Regretting that. About which a man should have no regrets. Which is I regret being asleep. And at first. And I say at first. It can go on for a a lifetime. I still don't see many people ever escaping it. But it can easily go on for decades. That a person. That it's proper, it's unavoidable, but it's proper even though they may be making effort and their understanding, shall we say, is incrementally increasing. It is proper until it becomes improper, but it's proper for them to feel as though I have deep regret being asleep, that I am continually assaulting and challenging myself. I regret when I catch myself being asleep, but they would certainly say. Anyone you found in a monastery over the last 5,000 years in any sort of school for awakening or enlightenment, if you ask them, are you are you fully enlightened? If they said no, then you'd say, I, do you regret the state you're in now? Everyone would say yes. Certainly, that's a fine word for it. I regret it. The day comes, it should come. I'm trying to make it come upon you, faithful. To where regretting being asleep is, shall we say, <clears throat> A regrettable misstep. It's self-defeating. You're regretting on the basis where there's something in me that's foreign. There's something about me, something in me, but there's something about me, I like in me, if you realize what I'm saying, that is not proper. And I regret it. I am suffering over it. As soon as I heard man believes he's awake, but he's asleep, as soon as I read it, I thought that's it. I've been upset all these years, and now I realize... I am in a regrettable condition. This is not my proper state. This is foreign to me. The truth is, there is nothing foreign to anybody other than, if you, if you insist, the only thing foreign to a man's mind is the belief that there is something foreign to him. It is. But I still like the question whether you got it or not. I will suggest it to you once more to ask yourself, By assuming, by believing. And you can blame it on other people. You can blame it on something you've read or you can blame it on me. Because I know it, from what I say, it would sound as though I deserve it. Me and everyone else, including your own mind. But when you accept the fact that there are things about me, there are things about humans, but there are things about me that are foreign. That is my mind. My thoughts staying out of my control. My mind not subjecting itself to my willful domination. All of that. My mind not staying where I put it. The promises I mentally make to myself, or that I make to myself mentally, I don't keep. All of that you feel is foreign to you. That that's what we're struggling against. But I ask you, go back, just you just have to either hit your it won't very simply as you ask yourself. Wait a minute. Let's pretend I'm starting all over. What is it that I think, having a reasonably ordinary mind? What is it that I expect I'm going to gain by struggling against these things that I believe are foreign in me? Or if you if you can catch this a little bit more subtle, the way I really like it. Is what—not just the question of what do I expect to ultimately gain from this, but what is it that I am expecting from the process itself, from the process of taking, believing that certain things in me are foreign. Forget forget the possible result. Forget the aim. Just right now, ask yourself: taking that approach, which you are taking. Everybody takes it. You can't help it. You're subject to it. But taking the approach that there are things in me, things about me that are actually foreign, and my mind out of control, me having very aggressive thoughts about my fellow man that I would never admit, me having naughty sexual thoughts or something, whatever it is, that there are things that are foreign. What is it? In what way is it going to help, or is it helping that you accept those things as being foreign to you? very subtle, very liberating if you get a glimpse of it. Because you realize, just put a name on it, it's insanity. A special brand just for us mystics. Which I just mean synonymous with wasting your time. As long as you're doing something, though, you're not wasting your time. That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at JanCox.com, where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest, or just leave us a message.